In October 2009, I was asked to travel to Ypres in Belgium to record the events surrounding the unveiling of a commemorative plaque in honour of three soldiers who fought during World War I. This documentary looks at the people and places involved. A walk from Ypres to Passion in the first great days of spring. Through flatland fields where life goes on, and carefree children sing. Past rows of ancient tombstones Where a generation lies And at last I understood Why old men cry Hello? Hello, Mike. Hi, Michael. I'll come down. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Michael. It's Brussels on a cold October morning. I arrive at Mike Walker's flat, a Dubliner living and working in Belgium. It's the beginning of a weekend commemoration for three men who fought in World War I. One of the men is Mike Walker's grandfather. Mike's brother, Tim, has already arrived. They're chatting about an old photograph. So this, there was all, even as a kid, I remember there was something bizarre about the picture of a pile of rubble. And then on the back, a farm. That's not a farm, that's a pile of rubble. And I guess, particularly us two, we must have prodded and poked our grandmother in terms of, you know, what did our grandfather do? What is this whole war thing? And I think we did it in a way that perhaps our cousins didn't done, hadn't done it before, and certainly in a way which either our, our father and our uncles either didn't do or were told to not a word. Because mm. I, I found myself in a funny situation last summer in between my father and my uncle, talking about this and talking about the whole Ypres thing. And they started talking about their father and about their childhood which I had never heard before. And I think my mother and my aunt were also there. And they also sort of like, this is, we haven't heard this very often. And again, because probably we asked, we have pretty much everything. His uniform, we got all this, these pictures, all the books. And one book crucial to this weekend is Mike's grandfather's published history of his battalion. In theory, every battalion or, or whatever group of, organised group of soldiers has their diary. His battalion is a bit more historic in that they were Wiped, they were wiped out in August 1917. How he managed to come through, well, I guess some did, but it was tiny numbers. Everything is reflected in the books and the, the resistance of people to speak about it because they had no way of contextualising the sheer horror of war at the time. And they were fighting, they were, did believe they were fighting for king and country. Yeah. Many of the locations for this weekend's gathering are based on passages from Captain Walker's book, A History of the 154 Siege Battery. These few days were a great strain on the personnel of the battery. We worked from morning till night and were often unable to get any sleep at all owing to gas. Besides, our strength had become very low owing to casualties, both through shellfire and sickness. 
During this battle, we were fortunate in not having much OP work to do. Great praise is due to Bombardier Widdop and his telephonists for the way in which they kept up the lines in the battery during this battle. People like my grandfather um, in some parts of Ireland were being killed. How did they square yeah. um, in, in the early 20s in terms of the, the war of independence and the civil war? So the horror, particularly living in Dublin, and it's after the war that he went to college and became a barrister. <coughs> um, but he was 20. He was 20 and he was in command. He was second in command. And, and then his older brother Cooper. was... Cooper had, I guess actually, would have gone in before him. So he sort of led the way. Uh, we don't do too many things together as a family. Um, certainly not, I mean, a family, broader family as in cousins and uncles. So this is a, it's a big deal. Sorry, just jump in. Hello. That's our brother. Good. You're driving. You're there. You're in Ypres already. You, we are staying Mike's there. phone in his HQ had been ringing all morning with calls from relatives and family members arriving from all points. We're getting a train at four o'clock. Uh, I don't actually haven't looked at the time, but we'll basically be there around seven. Thanks. Bye. Good. That's our other brother. They've arrived in Ypres. Uh, Peter, affectionately known as Chumper. I've been to Ypres so many times now that when I go there, it, it feels like one of my places. It's somewhere where I belong so to speak, uh, because of him and because of what happens. Your relationship with your father and then on his, with his father, I mean, how much does that come into play in this whole weekend? Oh, man, it's, it's, it's important for all of us. Since I moved here, uh, my parents have visited twice. We travelled around uh, some of the places around Ypres. They had never been, of course. But then afterwards, the day or two days later, with maybe even here eating, he, he commented that that was, that was a big deal. Um, to be standing somewhere where the chances are almost exactly his father had stood in the, in the midst of this, this, this war um, about, about which he had never spoken. And that was apparently, by his own reckoning, a big, a big deal. Um, so I think for this weekend, and, and this, I guess, for you, for you in terms of what you'll be doing, it might be difficult to, to get from them whether they'll vocalise it I have a sense Are that you it's proud of him. Proud, proud that he fought. No, I don't think proud in that sense. Um, I, you know, it's hard to know why. Why were they fighting? What were they fighting for? What does it mean that all these um, young men fought? How does it fit? And that's also true of my relationship with my grandfather. Here, the guns and personnel arrived by train about May twenty-first. This was the first occasion on which the battery had been in Belgium, and we looked forward with a certain amount of excitement to experiencing the horrors of the famous Ypres salient. I'm not sure what it necessarily means or why I'm doing it, uh, other than he was here and he did what he did, and I think, from my point of view, I like to remember that, and it'll be interesting to meet the families of the other two guys who fought with my grandfather. The other families involved in the weekend were those of Gunnar Hugh Graham and those of Lieutenant Herbert Green. I'm curious to see where that goes and what people talk about. Yeah, it's a guts of 40 people, but certainly our family is all converging on Ypres this evening. And then Ypres itself, the town, this beautiful old market town, which was almost entirely flattened. And they rebuilt it. They rebuilt it almost exactly Yes, probably. Okay, so yeah, we're in we're in Garden Midi in, in Brussels. It's just started raining, um, but we're about to get the train to uh, to Ypres. 
two and a half hours or so. It's, it's Friday evening. Uh, some of the others have arrived in Ypres already, and some will be arriving later. Um, but we'll arrive just, I guess, in time to have, have, have dinner together. Um, Valerie and Peter have just arrived on the Eurostar from, from, from London. Um, and Valerie is, is my grandfather's niece, uh, is the daughter of my great-uncle, who, who also uh, fought um, with the infantry uh, in and around the same area uh, as my grandfather. The two of them, the brothers together. Uh, although I, none of us really know, and it's highly, highly unlikely that they even knew at the time that they were fighting uh, so close to each other. Henry, what, what do you think about this whole, the idea of this whole weekend, and how do you feel about it? I'm very excited about it because I've always wanted to come and see where my dad fought. Um, he was one of the lucky ones to come home. There were only uh, about a dozen of the Inniskilling Fusiliers uh, who returned. Uh, he was one of them. My dad there mm. in the tin hat, and these this picture. Valerie's father, Cooper Walker, had also published a book on his experiences of the First World War, entitled "From Tipperary to Ypres." With the best part of a thousand men. Yes. There's 25 left from the thousand. He went from college. He was in college in England, in Cambridge, and he went back to Ireland and. To Tipperary Barracks, where he signed up. That's why I've just reread the book so that I can know and understand the, the places that, that we're going to because Dad seemed to be mainly in the Somme and Ypres and Passchendaele. We're now about five minutes or whatever, ten minutes from, from Ypres. Uh, we're just ab- uh, on the train and we're just about to come up to and go through Hill 60 which is one of which was one of the most hotly fought over uh, uh, places around Ypres because of its its height it was 60 meters high hence the name we'll be visiting that um, uh, tomorrow afternoon and here's the first cemetery which is passing um, right beside the railway with maybe 200 graves in it with you can just see the church which which is in one of my grandfather's pictures being shelled and now we're just coming up, or we're just about to pass where my grandfather was in 1918, and we'll be visiting that tomorrow as well. The position was at a place called Moat Farm, and turned out to be one of the worst places we have ever occupied. To begin with, we were very unfortunately placed. Belgian Battery Corner was on the right, in den Grögenjäger Crossroads behind, the main Ypres-Vlamertain Road on the left, and Christrahook in front. Batteries surrounded us on all sides, and as at Arras, not a square yard of ground was unoccupied. From here we covered the front, from Zillebecki to Messine. Such famous places as Hill 60, Saint-Eloi, the White Chateau, and Vichart village were easily in range. Our distance from the front line was approximately 3,000 yards. The, 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 the names of the farms, like Dead Dog Farm, Moat Farm, in some cases are names maybe from home, uh, such as Bedford, Bedford House. Um, and so here we are now arriving in, in Ypres train station. Dad will be here to meet and bring Valerie and, and Peter to their hotel. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Can I introduce you to... No, I've been out in the cold. Oh, you're not going to have... 
Here comes a whiz, bang, hush. Here comes a whiz, bang. Now you soldier men get down those stairs, down in your dugouts and say your prayers. Hush. Here comes a whiz, bang, and it's making straight for you. And you'll see all the wonders of no man's land if a whiz, bang, hits you. Why do I feel good about it? I'm interested in it. We don't often, as a family, get together. Mm. For that, it's good as well, to say so. I mean, it's one of those things where you have the books and you have the photographs and... <coughs> Mike's eldest brother, Peter, had also arrived. He was holding court as various members of different families introduced themselves to each other. <laughs> Hello, Michael. Oh. Sorry. Do you know... Oh, now, who's this one? Hello, Peter. Peter! Yes, that's Peter. me. Peter! Peter. <laughs> nice to meet you, Peter. <laughs> After reacquainting themselves with dinner and a few drinks, the next day, the first stop was the War Museum in the centre of town. Like to start up. <laughs> uh, how, many, how many are in your group? Um, 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 are they coming here now? Yeah, they're just around the corner. Ah, OK, cool. James? Sorry, I'm Um, so, we have just arrived, some uh, relatives of uh, Lieutenant Green. I think there's maybe eight in total. We're just about to go into the museum. Out of the cool night air, one passed through these high doors into an atmosphere that was insufferably revolting. It required a great effort of will to face the sight and stench of the countless gangrenous limbs that lay there helpless among the foul straw. Unter den Verwundeten wurde gestern auch ein Kopfschuss hereingebracht, als der Arzt den Bewachten Yeah, so the screens on, on two sides of the wall uh, depicting what, what no man's land was like. And you can see some of the, the soldiers crossing the uh, duckboards, which are these, these walkways which they built to keep them out of the mud. And now they're showing us pictures of a of a soldier being shot for some sort of discipline issue. The youngest member of the group was 12-year-old James Walker, great-grandson of Morris C. Walker. Everything and preserved it the way they have. Seeing all the, the land that they've been in and the. Yeah. Uh, I'm James Walker and I'm 12 years old. A list of wars that had followed the Great War scrolled down a television screen in front of the group. James read from it Syria, 1982. Nicaragua, 1983. Sudan, Dusud, uh, 1983. Sri Lanka, 1983. India, 1983. Uh, Sud Africa, 1984. Turkey, 1984. South Yemen, 1986. Somali, 1988. Liberia, 1990. Gulf War, 1990. It brings to life much of what you read in the books and much of what you see. And I dread hearing one of those cannons going off again, which I guess my grandfather was responsible 
for a, for a unit of. He was buried at Transport Farm, but later his grave could not be found. Uh, his name is now engraved on the Menin Gate. I'm Pam Walker, married to Raymond Walker, Morris's second son. And I knew Morris because I knew the family. My mother was best friends with uh, Raymond's mother. So Morris was the most delightful man when I was... Well, he died when I was 12. He was always full of fun. I could nearly cry. I cry quite easily, but I, I think it's a wonderful museum. Because usually after half an hour of a museum, I'm longing to get out. But I think this is done so well. Don't you? Uh, this is our third son, Stephen. So grandson of Morris. I've learned more about Morris in the last 12 hours than I've heard in all my life. And I don't know if that's deliberate or not. But well, your dad wouldn't talk too much no. about his dad. That's the sort of thing that happened in those days sometimes. But You know, it's not talked about in Ireland, you know, the First World War. You know, it is now, but it wasn't then. And that just wasn't something to be discussed. I did history in college. The First World War wasn't done in school. So I, I had no identity with the fact that my grandfather fought in the First World War. You know, I was aware of it and that was it, really. I think definitely there's an opening up. I mean, that's my, maybe it's my age, but I definitely feel that that's, you know, the, the Irish people are becoming more interested and not afraid to, you know, that there isn't a connotation because it was, uh, you know, to be Irish, to be really Irish, Nothing to be proud of that your grandfather went to the First World War. That was not something that was uh, very kudos, you know. Um, because you were Protestant and you were, you know, yeah, Anglo-Irish and you weren't really Irish. It wasn't something to be proud of or to be... It's a little bit different now. Yeah, I think so. Over 200,000 Irishmen served all over Europe during World War One. They came from every type of background. At least 35,000 of these men died. Yeah, we've got to round people up. Yeah, we're leaving the museum now, and uh, we're going to just organise all the cars, and we're going to drive now to Moat Farm. So I think uh, the atmosphere leaving the museum is a little bit, a little bit um, somber. Oh, you've obviously, Dad, you met Mark. Yes, we've been okay. Yeah, okay, good. Yes. Okay, so we're here with Mark, who's actually now the owner of uh, Manor Farm. And so he will soon be the owner of the... Mark Cohen was one of the main organisers for this event for these three families over the weekend. Good day, good weekend. There's a lot of work. I think we are already uh, about a year busy with this. And okay, now for me also, it are a lot of people I have never seen. But okay, also for the families themselves, they are three separate families. They also did not see each other before, so uh, something new also for them. Next stop was Moat Farm, where Mike would read from his grandfather's book. He positioned himself on the edge of a windy cornfield and started with an extract from his grandfather's book. So I think that the sort of idea for the day is that at the different places we go that I'll read a bit from the book related to the area. And of course this is the first farm, the first place in Belgium. So they came south from France and came here and arrived here on the 21st of May 1917. So... From the book. Here the guns and personnel arrived... Here the guns and personnel arrived by train about May 21st. This was the first occasion on which the battery had been in Belgium and we looked forward with a certain amount of excitement to experiencing the horrors of the famous Ypres salient. 
question? Yeah, oh yes. This young gentleman, if I could be heard. Where were the Germans? Well, there. The front was 3,000 yards. Okay. So I think the Germans were in Ypres once in 1915, right. very day, briefly. Right. Not when Father was in Motown. No, no. At that stage, the and Germans were. What direction is that? That's east. That's east. So the front went. That's east. Right. The front went down around Ypres, and then it cut in, though. Infantry uh, in oh, front of oh, them. Yes. 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 Yeah, they were. To live with any luck inside a trench. Your nose must be accustomed to the stench Of the rotten bush that lie on the parapet and die Cause they make a smell that hell itself can't quench As a matter of fact, in this position, the gunner's greatest enemy was not the Huns, but mosquitoes. We were positively invaded with them. He is the great-grandson um, of, well, my grandfather. And his second name is, is Morris, the, my grandfather's name. I think his afternoon has picked up now that he's found some uh, some bunkers and reinforced concrete observation posts for, to uh, to crawl in and out of. You know, we all grow up with with you know thoughts of of, of war and the idea of crawling in and out of a, a real bunker is is I guess uh, for most suburban Dublin kids and Irish kids not something which you you get the opportunity to do. See the bottom one here. So we're looking, we're looking at these, these two lumps of concrete. This is the German one, and that was facing that way. And then when the British came and they captured Hill 60, they put this bunker on top facing the other way. Now if you come up here, you can see down into it. There's the door, and that's what they looked at. See how thick it is? That's like a meter and a half thick concrete. Can you squeeze in? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's dark and wet and quite cold, there's lots of metal bars above. Young James Walker was fast becoming the mascot for the weekend, and as he scrambled around in a bunker his great-grandfather may well have sat in, he became the focus of attention, along with much thought of the past. We're reading all about the Australians tunnelling. Both sides attempted to locate opposing tunnels. They set up listening posts in the shallows about three metres below the surface, a nerve-wracking job as shelling could collapse the post and bury men alive. When enemy tunnels were detected, often in the deeps, about eight metres down, tunnellers would dig towards them and set off explosive charges. You're so attentive, aren't we? Thank you. Nothing like as muddy as it must have been in 1917. Harry and James, the grandsons of Lieutenant Herbert Green and Captain Morris Walker, played together in the bunker their grandfathers would have used in the First World War. Hey, it's very interesting. Nice fitting end to the, to the day, you know. <laughs> yeah. you okay, come on, Michael and James, we're tired. <laughs> on the night of May 16th, the battery moved forward. As this was only a distance of about three miles, the move was a quick one. An advance party had already built a few dugouts here and cleared to some extent the old trench shelters, which lay scattered about the locality. We were lucky, or perhaps unlucky, enough to get in addition some accommodation in a partially demolished farmhouse near the brasserie. The weather was now glorious, 
and we lost no time in mounting the guns and unloading ammunition, gun stores, etc. Camouflage was splendid, as the guns were beneath a row of tall, leafy oak trees. This, we thought, was the ideal position, well away from the main road, no important dumps at hand, and a long distance from group headquarters. Like all so-called ideal positions, it had one great drawback. Being off the main road, the lorries had to use a field track as an approach. The result was half our time was spent mending this track and pulling down ruined houses to get bricks with which to fill in the holes. We're now, uh, we've just arrived at, at, at Manor Farm. This is where the plaque was to be unveiled. And this is also an original piece of, of the house. You see how it was made in the time. It was indeed perhaps the reason why they called it Manor Farm. It was in that time rather a rich farm. So, But that is to have an impression. So you see it was a little bit at an angle with the old buildings. But they never built it uh, a farm again on the same base as it was. Mark, the owner of the farm, had built a small museum at the back of his house. A pipe. A pipe, a clay pipe. And you see the, the bullet here? Yeah. It says on the bottom, 16, so it's from 1916. And it looks like it's just been made today or yesterday. Hold it. So that's a German one. I'm not sure. It is. Jeffrey, son-in-law to Herbert Green, had seen service in Korea and certainly seemed to know what he was talking about. Well, I, happen to, I, rec I recognize that for a starter. And they're both live as well. Yeah. yeah. Do you know when Mark is going to do the unveiling, Mike? No. Where is it? So, first, thank you all for joining this ceremony. And first, a little explanation of how we all came to invite you uh, for the honor and remembrance of your fathers, your grandfather, or family. In the early summer of 2008, Mike Walker came to Manor Farm with some friends and the diary book of his grandfather, Captain Morris Walker. And also with the photo book you saw of the places where the 154 CS battery had been positioned with their heavy 9.2 inch guns. In the book, we can also read Second Lieutenant Green of 154 CS battery participated at this raid. As we can not all help physically to reveal the plate, we propose to let the honor to the ladies, Mary, daughter of Hugh Graham, and Heather, daughter of Herbert Green. I invite them together with our daughters to come nearer to reveal the plate. Go. Go. Wow. wow. Oh, that is very nice. That is very nice. Yeah. Beautifully done. That is lovely. I think it's very interesting and very moving too. Go on. Sorry. Because the 9th of April, the German artillery developed into a hurricane bombardment and the German counter As Mark played some suitable music in the background, Raymond Walker, son of Morris Walker, stood forward and read from the unveiled plaque. About midnight, after telephoning, the t telephone buzzed and the brigade commander officer... A few nights later, we had an unpleasant occurrence in the battery. A 15-centimeter HV gun was shelling the brasserie farm behind the guns and dropped a shot on the farm occupied by the quartermaster's store. The building quickly took fire and within a few minutes the quartermaster's stores were ablaze. Captain Walker, the sergeant major and a party of cooks armed with dixies full of water 
worked hard to put the fire out, but, but to no avail. Goodbye and good luck. It later transpired that Corps had sent a false message to Brigade. Michael's father, Colin, and son of Morris C. Walker, then stepped forward to say a few words. If he had gone back 91 years, we'd have been back in 1820 or thereabouts, which is a long span of time to think from then until now. But I think it has been worthwhile for the family to maybe to add a little bit to its history and for the people concerned, because I feel it does us all good sometimes to live a little bit of the past and to appreciate what people may have gone through in the past. I think it fitting, in conclusion, I know everyone's getting cold, but I wonder, as I stood here, whether when our fathers were here, whether they heard those bells at six o'clock in the evening or not. Somehow I think it unlikely, uh, and I think following the previous speaker, it is an indication in part of peace that we can stand here and listen to bells, and it is appropriate. On behalf of our family, we thought it appropriate as a gesture to Mark that he should have a copy of my father's book, because that is a fitting, it is a fitting place for it to be lodged, and the family would like him to keep it here in the museum. So with our thanks, I'll give it to okay. Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, it's been fascinating. It was my father, and I knew nothing really about his history in the First World War or his history in the Second World War. Heather Root, daughter of it's Herbert Green. Um, the three soldiers we're celebrating today, that those three actually survived and that we're all together. You know, it's a very unusual occasion, I think. Hush, here comes a whiz, bang, hush, here comes a whiz, bang. Now you soldier men get down those stairs, down in your dugouts and say your prayers. Here comes a whiz, bang, and it's making straight for you, and you'll see... We're at the train station again, Sunday morning, um, so we've got a day behind us, and now we're headed to the chateau where the, the 154 Battalion were based in July 1918, and we're going to meet there, and we're going to have a little look around the chateau, but we're going to meet with uh, the Duchess. Um, she's she's insisted that uh, sorry the Duchess of the Duchess the Duchess of the of the chateau. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what she's Duchess of, um, but suitably enough, it's a chateau, it's a castle, so it has a um, um, not a royal but a aristocratic person living there, and she's the Duchess, and she has insisted. Um, once she learnt about about all of this, she was insistent that um, that she has a bit of reception for us and shows us around uh, not just the grounds but also inside the castle where 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 the battalion were based because the castle wasn't destroyed um, and they actually used it to uh, as an observation post and all that and our our convoy of of six cars one bike and one motorbike. Now we require the motorbike, so six cars and one motorbike. Are about to uh, 
leave here and follow uh, Mark. I think things went very well. The, um, we perhaps, well, we did quite a lot and obviously it took longer than we planned. But I think we got a lot in and it, I have no idea. Well, I have a sense that, that people enjoyed it. It was a very different experience for each person. A very personal experience for each person. Shooting in the first week of June was confined more to balloon and ground observation work. The observation point was at Vlamertain Chateau, a distance of only 20 minutes walk from the guns, and therefore very convenient. This observation point was probably the most luxurious ever used by us. It was scarcely ever shelled. On one occasion, while an officer was observing a shoot from the tower, a Belgian military band was performing in the courtyard below. This was an extraordinary, if not unique, occurrence. Um, we've just arrived at the chateau and we're just uh, driving up the up the drive. Oh, have we arrived too early? <laughs> yeah, I think Mark wanted. If you have any any questions about whatever, please uh, ask me. My mother, who will be inside, my two elder children, Charles and Mathilde, who is not there yet, just started English, so they might <laughs> might speak a few words. Uh, the better verse in Flemish or French. We'll walk inside for those who want. We'll we'll go all the way up in the towers. It will take a little time because the ladders are quite steep and narrow and you can't go more than one by one up there, so it will take a bit of time and Roger will, Roger will help me for that. Well, um, my name's Anthony Rutt and I'm uh, one of the grandchildren of Herbert Green. So I've actually lived in the States, so I've come over for this. Um, it's been a packed schedule, very interesting. And actually, as I said to Mike last night, my... My grandfather, who died um, a few months after I was born, obviously I'd never, never really knew him. This has given me a point of connection with my grandfather, which I never had. So it's really been a wonderful experience, really a piece of personal history. And this morning we actually went to a bunker by Manor Farm that Mark's pretty convinced that uh, my grandfather and the other officers would have been in. So it's, it's, it's been a really interesting, fascinating trip. We used to cover ourselves with cresol and ammonia, which kept them away as long as the odour remained. The thick trees and shrubs were responsible for the extraordinary numbers of these unpleasant insects. Oh, 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 it's a lovely war. Who wouldn't be a soldier, eh? Oh, it's a shame to take the pay as soon as your valley is gone. And now we're headed down towards the, uh, the Menin Gate. Do you hear the last post? It's coming up on 8 o'clock. It's, it's about... Uh, 20 to 8 every every night in, in, in Ypres at 8 o'clock they play the last post I believe they've been playing it every night uh, bar during the second world war uh, since the end of the first world war we're all here, all the different families are here and I think we've organised with the fire brigades that at the end of the last post the three youngest children from three of the families will lay a wreath in commemoration of the three gunners and their families from today Certainly for us, for, for, for our family, 
today's really it's four generations it's it's my grandfather my father and my uncle um myself and my brothers and of course james and i haven't been here at a time when there hasn't been uh, english soldiers here in uniform or british soldiers in uniform the total number of casualties in world war 1 both military and civilian was estimated at 37 million As a young kid, he couldn't be much older than James in a uniform who has just marched from one side of the, uh, the arc, uh, arch or gate to the, to the other. Kind of bizarre to think, you know, all these lists of dead, dead soldiers. And I suppose many of them also were so young. You know, the, end, the war to end all wars and 90 years later we still have teenagers marching around in uniform. In fact, they're going up and laying the wreath now, along with, uh, along with uh, Hugh Graham's daughter. For me, this had been a very interesting journey to Ypres, made all the more real by the warmth and honesty of the families involved. Mike Walker had suggested it might be difficult to get comment from some of the family members. I would surmise that some things just speak for themselves. Cadets in uniform are marching out, and that's the last post. I was up on the ledge, so I could see everything. I couldn't get everything on, on the camera. It ran out of charge after about five minutes. To see uh, Walker here is quite cool with all the names on it, so Graham, Green, Walker, and that's who they're remembrance of, so, yeah, it's been a very long day. And it's very interesting. Nice fitting end to the, to the day, you know. <laughs> yeah. Walk from Ypres, it's a passion day In the first green days of spring Through flatland fields where life goes on um, So thank you for coming and, 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 and sharing this, this with me um, Especially to Dad and to Big and of course, battery also. And at last I understood why open men cry. Thank you, Michael. Back to work now. <laughs>